This is a production by One and All Media. For more, head to oneandall.media. In the life of Gideon, God shows us seven resolutions that lead ultimately to our flourishing. And I'm saying to you that if you will come on this journey with me and you will wake up every day allowing these resolutions to govern the way you live and the manner in which you respond to every circumstance, your countenance will be constantly lifted. You'll become an incredible optimist. You're going to live with a centralized joy, an overarching hope in the power and the presence of God. Today. 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 Today with Jeff Fines, pastor, apologist, and Bible teacher. Hey there, welcome to Today with Jeff Fines. Today we start a series called Unpossible. Pastor Jeff is examining Judges chapter 6 and 7 and the lessons we can learn from the life and faith of Gideon. He'll identify seven resolutions that can guide us to live full lives with a sense of joy and hope in the presence of God. Let's begin as Pastor Jeff sets up what this series is about. I'm in Judges chapter 6 and 7. We're going to be in this for a few weekends. But this series is called Unpossible. And as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, this is the culmination of a lifelong journey, trying to harmonize a good and merciful and kind God who always has our best interest in mind with the reality of real life where we live and the pain and the suffering and the challenges, the obstacles we face almost every day from the big ones, the huge ones, the health issues and health scares, all the way down to the small conflicts and betrayals that we experience every day. I love the Beach Boys, and of course that makes sense living here in Southern California. Uh, The Beach Boys actually were from Hawthorne, California, which is a suburb of Los Angeles. They sang a lot of simple songs, and uh, songs almost that had the lyrics of some type of daydreaming, you know, like it wasn't the real world. They were quite unrealistic, but fun to sing. One of the songs that I really enjoyed was a song, I think the title was, Wouldn't It Be Nice? And some of the lyrics go, happy times together we've been spending. I wish that every kiss was never ending. I mean, do you really wish that every kiss was never ending? You got to come up for air sometimes. He goes on and he says, maybe if we think and we wish and we hope, it might come true. I mean, wouldn't that be nice? Whatever you think about, whatever you wish for, whatever you hope for, automatically comes true. He says, baby, then there wouldn't be a single thing we couldn't do. Oh, we could be married, and then we'd be happy. Oh, wouldn't it be nice? And as I've said before, anybody that thinks it's only happiness when you get married has never been married. Yes, marriage is great. It's blissful. It's enjoyable, but it also comes with challenges, much like life. I got my own song, wouldn't it be nice version? And I'd like, to, I'd like it to go like this. Wouldn't it be nice if I never had any problems? Wouldn't it be nice if we never suffered or had any pain? Wouldn't it be nice if God warned us? We talk about God being omniscient, knows everything that ever will happen in our lives. Wouldn't it be nice if God came to us and warned us and said, okay, some pain is about to come into your life, but here's the reason I'm going to allow it. Wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't it be so much easier, uh, wouldn't it be nice if we always knew how things were going to work out for the good for those who love God and called according to his purpose? Wouldn't it be nice? 
I don't know if you've noticed this, but we're very, very good with words and ideas when we're trying to encourage someone else who's in the middle of a, of a difficult season of life. We say the right things. Our faith for them is so strong. We talk about the fact that God is omnipotent and he's all powerful and he can do anything. The battle belongs to the Lord. And when you speak to your friend, you're reminding them God is able to do much more than you could ever hope for or imagine. You'll tell others when they're suffering that God is omniscient. He saw this coming and if he's allowed it into your life, he must have a reason or purpose for it. Or that God is omnipresent. And although you may not understand everything, God will give you this prevailing presence as you go through this difficult time. And all those things are true. The problem is, when, when tragedy strikes in our lives, let's be honest, and I'm right there with you, we're very good when it's happening in somebody else's life, when they're having struggles. For you and me, though, when it happens to us, in our humanity, our faith begins to waver. We still believe in an omnipotent God that he's able. We still believe in his omniscience, that he saw that something was about to enter into our lives. The problem is not that we don't trust God. We believe God is all-powerful. We believe he's all-knowing. We believe he will give us that prevailing presence. The problem is we don't trust ourselves. Because when something comes into our life that is incredibly unfortunate, most of us go down this path. Well, is this some sin that I've committed? Have I done something to deserve what I'm experiencing now? Because I know God wouldn't allow this in just for no reason. So obviously this is retribution. I'm being punished because I violated his word. Or sometimes we'll say, well, maybe I've been living a pretty good righteous life. And so the devil has a target on my back and he's gonna, he's gonna punish me for taking territory away from him. Or maybe this is a fallen world. And Pastor Jeff says that we're part and partial to a falling world. Sometimes we're just in the wrong place at the wrong time. All of these things go through our mind. When tragedy strikes, like Job, we wished we knew exactly what's going on here. What is at play? Why is this happening? I have often heard people say, Pastor Jeff, if I, I could endure the what if I knew the why. If I just knew why this is happening, then I would be able to, to deal and endure it. That's exactly what Job said, and it's the oldest book in the Bible. That was also his assumption. God, just tell me why. Now, you and I know the upper story because we read chapters one and two, but Job doesn't know. And he says to God continually, just tell me why. I can endure the what if I know the why and I know how you're gonna use this for some extraordinary endeavor. Please let me know. And you know what? God never addresses it. Do you know why? Neither do I. He never address, never tries to explain to Job. You ever try to explain something to maybe your child and you know as you're explaining it, his mind and his world is still, is still too small to comprehend what you're trying to get over or get across, even though you're given a good explanation, his mind can't comprehend. I wonder sometimes if that's God with us. Well, I would tell you why I'm doing this, but if I told you, you wouldn't get it. There are too many dots to connect. One of my favorite television shows, Everybody Loves Raymond. Raymond, the father, is talking with his daughter, Allie, and Allie's asking some pretty intense questions, pretty meaningful questions. Dad, she says, why are we here? Why did God put us here? And of course, Raymond has no idea what to say. So he comes up with this thought. He says, well, you know, honey, it's crowded in heaven. And because it's so crowded up there, then God puts some of us down here. So we're here because God is trying to alleviate heavenly congestion. And of course, that's quite humorous, 
But he doesn't know how to explain the authentic, the genuine answer to his daughter, so he comes up with something else. I wonder, God has much more integrity than that. So God, if he tried to explain, would we get it? But I want you to notice, and many of you know the story, and we're not in Judges yet, but we're building a foundation here because this series is gonna last for a few weeks. And I wanna make sure we get our thoughts going in the right direction because Job, even though he doesn't know the reason, he responds. One, he maintains his faith and trust and commitment in God, believing that there's something he can't see. He wants to know, but even though he doesn't know, he believes so much in the goodness and the character of God and what God and God's good intentions for him that he keeps and maintains his faith. In fact, the Bible says in all of Job's questioning, he does not sin against God. The second thing is his response, and this took me a while to understand, his response ushers in a cosmic victory of good over evil. Somehow, Job's response to this mattered on a cosmic scale, as if good in that moment overcame evil, as if a battle was won and a victory had been secured. And in the end, you know the rest of the story, Job prospers spiritually. In chapter 42, verse 5, Job says, before my ears had heard of you, and now my eyes see you. Job says, I still don't know why this happened, but I do know this. In the midst of this, you gave me a revelation of yourself. Before I thought I knew you, but I'd only heard of you. Now I see you with my own eyes. And he also prospers, stay with me now, physically. In later part, a later part of chapter 42, the Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the former part. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 donkeys. And he also had seven sons and three daughters. The first daughter he named Jemima, the second Keziah, and the third Karen Hapuk. Uh, just as a side note here, these names, you can tell that whatever Job's gone through, at the end of it, something extraordinary has been created in him. In fact, I would argue that he's actually becoming like God in this because Jemima means a dove, means a lovely bird. Keziah means a cinnamon-prized spice. Now, if you've ever walked through an airport and you smell Cinnabon, you know that God is good. And the third daughter is Karen Hapuk, which means horn of eyeshadow. So as I've mentioned before, he names his other daughter, his third daughter, Maybelline, okay? And their father granted them an inheritance. This is Job, along with their brothers, which is unheard of. In a culture of primogeniture, the, the young sons, especially the firstborn, got everything. But Job is becoming more like God through these extraordinarily unfortunate events. Okay, I want you to take that and put it to the side just for a moment. We're on a journey here together. In 1989, Stephen Covey published a self-help book called The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. 25 million copies sold. It was, it was the first audio book to pass one million. It's the best-selling business book in human history. It's been translated in 40-plus languages worldwide. What's ironic about the book, it attempts to communicate absolutes in a world of relativity. And four of these absolutes, as I read them, seem to me like they're taken right out of the Judeo-Christian context. Fairness, integrity, honesty, human dignity. Covey's masterclass comes straight out of Jesus' teachings and the Sermon on the Mount, not to mention the Pauline epistles. In this book that has sold so many copies that have been read by millions and millions of people, Covey describes what he calls 
an aha moment. Now, please stay with me here. And he describes an aha moment like this. He defines it. A moment of sudden realization, inspiration, insight, recognition, or comprehension. Covey says for him, and you business leaders will appreciate this, his aha moment came when he suddenly realized, and I quote, how many business leaders of major companies completely restructured and realigned the habits of their companies to conform with a series of principles they sincerely believed would change everything. He goes on to say that he came to understand that character is shaped out of habits. A thought becomes an action, an action becomes a habit, the habit shapes our character and character decides ultimately our destiny. Let me say that again, a thought becomes an action. I'd like to say a belief becomes an action, an action becomes a habit. The habit shapes our character and character decides destiny, ultimately where we end up. But here's the crux, he says. Employees realize that they need not be controlled by external forces, but instead could shape unfortunate events into individual and corporate wins by altering their response and perspective. That is basically good theology for how you and I are to face life. And when I started writing the book and I decided we need to go through this as a church, this is when I had my aha moment for my own life. What could happen if those of us who call ourselves Christ followers integrated seven resolutions into our daily lives tied to origin and design, where we came from and God's purpose for us? What if we realize that we don't have to be controlled by external forces and could in fact reshape the unfortunate events of our lives into significant spiritual wins. Gideon faced an impossible situation, a situation he detested, one that he resented. He had little to no courage to face it. He's like many of us, if we're honest, spiritual wimps. We talk a really good game when it's in somebody else's life, but when the enemy starts coming down the mountain into our valley to destroy us, most of us spiritually melt. When that happens to us, including me, including all of us, think about it. We're so good with other people. I just turned 59 last Tuesday, and I asked myself the question as I began to write this series, why am I no better at this now than I was in my 20s? Because when difficult things strike our lives, when tragedies come in, whatever it is, we'll get to the, specific, uh, the specifics in a moment, but whatever it is, what do we do? How do we respond? Our first inclination is not by faith. It's just not. Lose our job, get bad news from the doctor, estranged from our kids, whatever it is, tragedy. We start losing sleep. Our thoughts are dominated by the unfortunate events. We think about it all the time. In the shower, when we're getting ready for the day, it wakes us up in the middle of the night. We're possessed with the thoughts of what might happen rather than what is now. And we become crushed by the uncertainty. We are Gideon. And yet... Here's why we're going to this over the next few weeks. Gideon experiences one of the greatest victories in Israel's history, which tells me that if he can, then we can. And then we ask, how did he do it? And the answer is simple. God trained him to think and respond differently to the tragedies of his life. I don't mean subtle differences. 
I mean life-altering, life-transitional ways of thinking and responding to the impossible situations in our lives. Unpossible, incapable of rising above or succeeding. And again, I'm talking about the real world here. That's why I want to take the time to make sure you know what we're talking about if we're going to come to these answers, if we're going to be productive, if we're going to determine our destination through the responses that we exhibit when these trials come into our lives, no matter what they are. I'm talking about the real world. When we lose our job and wonder how we're going to feed our family, when we're betrayed by someone we felt close to, when we lose someone we love so dearly, when Mr. Right becomes Mr. Wrong, when the doctor comes back with the big C word, the word cancer, when depression overwhelms us, when anxiety wrecks us to the point of constant fear and worry and doubt, and then finally robs us of our ability to function daily, when our children become estranged, when our families break up and destroy the things we treasure so dearly, when everything we thought we knew is turned on its head and suddenly we feel we can't hope or trust in anything or anyone anymore. Folks, that's real life right there. How do we face it? I'm telling you, it does not have to be this way for us. And here is what the Lord has shown me through the word. I'm gonna take you into Judges chapter six, verse one through six, so get ready. In the life of Gideon, God shows us seven resolutions that lead ultimately to our flourishing. And I'm saying to you that if you will come on this journey with me and you will wake up every day allowing these resolutions to govern the way you live and the manner in which you respond to every circumstance, no matter how big or small, every unfortunate event that comes into your life, everything that you'd rather not deal with, if you learn to respond to it in a different way by these seven resolutions, the good, the bad, the fortunate, the unfortunate, the possible, the impossible, the following things are gonna happen. Your countenance will be constantly lifted. You'll become an incredible optimist. Nothing will discourage you for any significant length of time. Now we're human. We're going to have bad days. We're going to be discouraged, but not for any significant length of time. You're going to live with a, a centralized joy, an overarching hope in the power and the presence of God. And greater still, you're going to be so overwhelmed by the feeling that God is near when you live by these seven resolutions, that you're going to be constantly moving beyond mere knowledge of God into existentially experiencing God and knowing beyond the shadow of a doubt that God is near. And when you become that kind of person, most people around you are going to be in awe of you and they're going to want to know your secret. So resolution one, here we go on this awesome journey. Resolution one goes like this. I will see the unfortunate events of my life as faith builders leading to the greatest accomplishments of my life. Let me say it again. You're going to make a commitment to live by this first resolution. I will see every unfortunate event, the unfortunate events of my life as faith builders leading to the greatest accomplishments of my life. In Judges chapter six, we meet Gideon. He's anxious, depressed, with little hope of recovery. He lives in a time when Israel, his people, and himself, they have abandoned God. Let me give you the summary of Gideon's time. Chapter six, verse one. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And for seven years, he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. 
Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count them or their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. And a summary of the manner in which Israel is living in the day of the judges, especially Gideon, is summarized in chapter 21, verse 25. Everybody did what was right in their own eyes. So here we are. Think about what Gideon is facing. According to the narrative, at every harvest time, the Midianites are just waiting for the crops to ripen, and they come down out of the mountains. They're too numerous to count, which means you look out and all you see are Midianites. And they destroy and burn all the crops. So they're trying to commit genocide, not by warfare, but by simply exterminating through starvation. They don't want to enter in a battle. They don't want to fight, even though it's difficult to see why not, because they overpowered significantly the Israelites. I mean, we're talking about 135,000, according to the text that we'll get into later. There's 135,000 Midianite well-trained warriors, and you only have about 32,000 Israelite farmers at this point. That's better than a four-to-one odd. And still, they're warriors versus farmers. They don't know how to fight. Gideon looks at this and says, where on earth is God? What happened to that great God of Israel who opened the Red Sea for his people and who fell the walls of Jericho? And then we're told in verse 11, the angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Oprah that belonged to Joash the Abyssalite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Now think about what we're told here. Gideon is not a man of courage. He's terrified. All the people, when the Midianites come down, nobody stands up to fight. They all hide in caves and holes and rocks, behind the rocks, waiting for the Midianites to improvise the land and then return to their homes. Gideon is in the wine press trying to save the, the, the wine and the grapes with, with one eye looking probably over the wall waiting for the Midianites to come. He lives in total fear. And it's at this moment, with one eye on the task and one eye over the wall looking for the enemy, that the angel of the Lord, basically it means the Lord himself shows up and says, O valiant warrior. In verse 13, Gideon replies, If the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our fathers told us about when they said, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and put us into the hand of Midian. Now you think about this. What is Gideon saying? Gideon's saying, Look, God, what gives? Now, what I like about this is Gideon and his people are in this situation because of years of total disobedience to the precepts of God. You've been doing evil for the last seven years. Idol worship, adultery, no gratitude for the promised land. You've lived with a sense of entitlement. You only come to me when things are bad. Worship and my precepts have become an inconvenience to you. You're distracted by all the milk and honey that comes from my hand, and yet there's no gratitude or generosity. And by the way, what about the Asterisk pole and the statue of Baal? In verse 25b in chapter 6, God says, Gideon, tear down your father's altar. So it's been going on for a while through a few generations. Tear down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asterisk pole beside it. Then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on top of this height. And they wonder why things aren't going well. Yet, notice, 
This is huge. God does not say to Gideon, let's talk about your sin. Isn't that amazing? God doesn't go there. He simply says to Gideon, do you want out or not? You've been listening to Today with Jeff Fines. Thanks for joining us. Next time, we'll bring you the rest of this message from Pastor Jeff. Now, Gideon doesn't know what you and I know, and that is that God has a history of using flawed people. That's just the way he works. But God doesn't go there. He doesn't talk about the sin of Gideon or Israel. You can listen to more messages like this. Just search for Today with Jeff Fines wherever you listen to podcasts. Today. 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 Today with Jeff Fines. This is a production by One and All Media. For more, head to oneandall.media.